Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20 in your Bible. Just a word of encouragement regarding uh, what we have downstairs. I'm going to say a few more things in the adult Christian life hour. But uh, we do have, of course, tracks and books downstairs. And uh, there's one track that's just a single uh, little sheet. You have some in front of you in the pew called The Gospel of God. Uh, we have plenty of these, and uh, certainly we'd like to give them away to people who need it. And I just want to encourage you to take advantage of that. Uh, the supply is there, and uh, of course there are pay- plenty of people who need the gospel. So whether it's handing it to someone who uh, just served you in some way, or as the Lord just impresses on your heart to share it with someone, that's an opportunity. There is a little booklet called Coming to Faith in Christ that is a bit longer. It has a scripture in the back of it, but it is a presentation of the gospel. It does include the law as a standard for uh, helping someone to see that they're a sinner. Um, these cost a little bit more. The purpose of this is really if you find yourself in a conversation with someone and it may just be that uh, they're asking or interested or just, again, the Lord impresses on your heart. There's an opportunity for us to share that with someone and uh, give them the gospel in a way that, uh, you know, sometimes people get a piece of paper like this and they just kind of toss it aside. Uh, less likely to do that with a book, uh, something, a little booklet that has a nice cover. Um, but the Lord can use just a simple word of the gospel through a tract to be a witness. And uh, we are, of course, called witnesses. Um, we are witnesses for good or for ill. Uh, we are to preach the gospel to every creature. And uh, so I just want to encourage all of us to be faithful with uh, what we've been given to do. We are, if it came down to it, we are obligated. Uh, we are debtors, but we're also ambassadors, and it's a privilege to give the gospel to those who need the gospel. And so I just want to share that with you. Of course, there are other tracks as well, uh, some that are directed more uh, to a specific audience, but I just want to encourage you to take advantage of that. Exodus chapter 20, we are at the seventh word of the Decalogue. It's found there in verse 14, just two words in the original. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. There's a professor in Kentucky the name of Dr. Joanne Sweeney. She wrote an article a number of years ago. I think it was 2014. The title of it is Undead Statutes, The Rise, Fall, and Continuing Uses of Adultery and Fornication Criminal Laws. And she chronicles a history of laws in America that criminalize adultery and fornication. She goes all the way back to the colonial period, even a bit into English history. And she details that for different reasons, adultery and fornication have been long viewed as crimes on the books. But particularly in the last century, in the 1950s and 60s, 
they have largely failed to be enforced. And at the same time, they remain laws in about 20 of our states. And the article again is titled, Undead Statutes, the Rise, Fall, and Continuing Uses of Adultery and Fornication Criminal Laws. So they're still on the books. Not enforced. Because of the sexual revolution, yes. Because of a court case as well that determined that two consenting adults have a right to privacy, that is one of the concerns for enforcement. The thought is that if it's enforced, that that will strike any uh, challenge down, that those laws will be struck. For a lawmaker or for a public official to challenge those laws or to get them off of the books would not be a very popular thing to do because of people's moral sensibilities. For someone to campaign for getting the adultery or fornication laws off the books would seem odd. And she ends the article with these words. She says, These laws, therefore, will remain in limbo, unrepealed and unable to be challenged. Perhaps if the culture continues to change, they will finally be relegated to history. She doesn't suggest a course of action. And whether they are relegated to history or not based upon cultural change, God does have a law. He has put it in Scripture. And he's also written it on the hearts of every person, every individual made in his image. Romans 2 says, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Marriage. Hebrews 13 says, is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Using a broader word, Revelation 21.8 says, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons, it's the word pornos, referring to immorality of all sorts of different kinds. And sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's Revelation 21.8. You shall not commit adultery. The unfaithfulness of a man or a woman to his or her marriage covenant very technically refers to a sexual relationship with other than a spouse as a married or, as you find in the law, even a betrothed person, someone who is engaged. We'll see that there is a breadth of teaching, just like there was with the Sixth Commandment, a breadth of teaching that the law points to. Jesus, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, dealt with adultery that went to a person's eyes, and their heart 
whoever looks upon a woman to lust after her has committed adultery already with her in his heart. And as we look at this commandment and we look at how it's handled in the Word of God, we see a very significant thing that God has done, that he is guarding here the sanctity of marriage. That he is forbidding the breaking of the marriage covenant. And, of course, he's prohibiting sins that lead to such unfaithfulness. I think we'll look at the first two, Lord willing, today. The seventh commandment guards, or the seventh word of the Decalogue guards, the sanctity of the marriage covenant. Marriage is sacred. It is not a sacrament, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches, but it is sacred. It was established by God. Marriage is an institution that was ordained by God as a picture of his relationship with his people. It was, of course, established for the good of society, a nation, the family, for the good of children. And, of course, this command teaches that it's not to be violated or defiled. And if you would, turn back to Genesis chapter 2. As God created the woman, man realized there was no helper suitable for him, but God created the woman, brought her to the man. Verse 23, it says, The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined and be joined to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Of course, that's in the time of their innocence before the fall, which is in the next chapter. One flesh describes the totality of the biblical unity that God desires for a married couple. It means much more than physical unity. One flesh is a unity of body, spirit, mind, conviction, purpose, intention, destiny. This is God's desire for a marital relationship. And so, you shall not commit adultery is an obvious prohibition in light of that purpose and plan of God. God, of course, brought Eve to Adam. What a special thing for that first couple, that one flesh relationship in their innocence. And it is a beautiful thing that God has made as he's given marriage. I love what Matthew Henry said as he describes the ideal that God established for marriage. He says the woman was made out of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him and under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. And we look at these verses, and of course we look at the commandment, we have to ask the question, if we're going to apply this, those of us who are in a married covenant relationship, are you seeking that one flesh relationship with your spouse? Are you pursuing that? Are you united with your spouse in spirit, body, mind, conviction, purpose, intention, destiny? That doesn't happen 
by accident. It happens, of course, with a lot of work, grace from God, the work of his spirit. But it's what we ought to be striving for. And even today, I hope that we'll be reminded to strive for that. This is something that God has given to us to strive for, and there's something at stake, and it's not just your relationship. That is at stake if you don't pursue that one flesh relationship. But there's something bigger, something greater that this is a testimony to. When God says you shall not commit adultery and that call to faithfulness speaks to a husband and a wife, there's a covenant there that's reflected. Malachi, the prophet, speaks of the wife of one's youth, who is, in the words of Scripture, your companion and your wife by covenant. It's a covenant that takes place in marriage. Two people face one another, and in sincerity and truth, bind themselves together in solemn agreement in the sight of God and witnesses. They make gracious promises to one another. They will keep by God's grace and help until death parts them. Until death parts them. Until death, yes, until death. That's the intention of God. Marriage is to be permanent. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, Do you not know, brethren, For I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. And Paul makes the application to our relationship with Christ, our death to the law, and our being joined to him who was raised from the dead, Christ. But he's referencing there, and as a teacher, certainly as Paul was, of the law, he understood. It's important to understand and remember that marriage is for life. We make those vows, and those vows are uttered before witnesses. Ultimately, they're uttered before God, who is witness to everything we do and say. And God hears our vows. And so that's another point of application. Did you make vows, and are you keeping those vows? Have you considered that it was a vow made before God in the presence of witnesses? And are you being true to those vows? As you're true to those vows that you made as a part of a covenant, and you keep that covenant, the bigger picture in your life, the life of your spouse, the bigger picture is you're giving a picture of God. Because God is a God who keeps covenants. God is a God who is always faithful. God is a God who never breaks a covenant. He keeps down to the last detail of every word that he said. God means what he says. And so marriage, designed by God, is sacred as a lifelong covenant. As we live out that covenant and strive to be faithful to that covenant, we're seeking to show what God is like to a world around us and how uncommon that is becoming 
faithfulness to that covenant. People disregard the covenant, abandon covenants, break covenants for reasons of incompatibility or all sorts of different reasons that are not worthy. Covenants are made to be kept. If it says, till death do us part, it's till death do us part. And beyond that, beyond picturing the faithfulness of God, beyond the one flesh relationship, there's also the matter of the relationship between a man and a woman picturing the relationship of God and his people. One author by the name of Gary Thomas in his book called Sacred Marriage wrote, a giant thread runs throughout Scripture comparing God's relationship to his people with the human institution of marriage. One of the prophets who most clearly brings that out is the prophet Hosea. If you read through the book of Hosea and see the constant application of the relationship of God to his people with the relationship of a man and a woman, of course, Hosea and his wife Gomer, who was unfaithful, is the picture there. And Gomer is unfaithful, and yet Hosea remains faithful. He's always true to her, actually takes her back after she sold herself into prostitution. And that was a picture of what God was going to do for his people and his mercy towards them and his grace towards them. He was going to take them back and restore them. Hosea 2.18, he says, In that day I will make a covenant for them. With the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, the creeping things of the ground, I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land. I will make them to lie down in safety. He's speaking of his people. Speaking of the safety that he's going to bring to them after their unfaithfulness brought all of these judgments to them. And then he says this, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. That time of restoration is a time when God, yes, acknowledging the sinfulness and failures of his people, but being faithful, betrothes them again, takes them again into that relationship they had formerly. Isaiah 62 puts it this way, It will no longer be said to you forsaken, nor to your land will it longer, uh, any longer be said desolate, but you will be called, My delight is in her and your land married, for the Lord delights in you. And to him your land will be married, for as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. You could find other statements in the prophets in the Old Testament. Very clearly in Ephesians 5, when husbands are called to love their wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she, the church, would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one yet ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They're coming around to full circle. What was that about in the garden? 
What was God doing with Adam and Eve? What was he establishing there? He was establishing a picture of himself. Paul says, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church, Christ and his people. That's what's at stake in your marriage. When you don't pursue that one flesh relationship, when you don't pursue that with your spouse, then the testimony at stake is, yes, it's yours, but ultimately there's a picture that you're failing to give to the world and to those looking on, to your children or whoever, of God. God is not being glorified. God is not being magnified. Revelation 21, John says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Yet another testimony among many in Scripture that I think gives weight to that statement, it is a giant thread that runs through Scripture. Comparing God's relationship to his people with the human institution of marriage. Same author said, God did not create marriage just to give us a pleasant means of repopulating the world and providing a steady societal institution for the benefit of humanity. Those things are true. He planted marriage among humans, he says, as yet another signpost pointing to his eternal spiritual existence. And beyond that, of course, to his relationship with his people. So your marriage is not just about you, it's about God. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. The marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Fornicators and adulterers are unfaithful. God is not unfaithful. That picture would present a lie about God. And if anything, our lives are to be a testimony to the truthfulness of God. Not just our lips giving testimony to the gospel, but our lives giving testimony to who he is and to what he's like. And so, yes, faithfulness, body and soul, heart and mind, in every way, seeking that one flesh relationship. And so those pastors, teachers that gathered at Westminster, as they spoke about this commandment. They said, what are the duties required in this seventh commandment? The duties required are chastity. It's not a word we hear very much anymore, but it's the word purity. Chastity in mind, body, affections, words and behavior, and the preservation of it in ourselves and others. Watchfulness over the eyes and all the senses. Temperance, keeping of chaste company, modesty and apparel, marriage by those that have not the gift of continency. Conjugal love, that's physical intimacy within marriage. That's a duty of this commandment. And cohabitation, and that's not the current definition of cohabitation. That means a married couple living together. Diligent labor in our callings, shunning all occasions of uncleanness and resisting all temptations thereunto. Paul says in Thessalonians, is he giving giving a reminder to those Thessalonian believers not to commit fornication? He says believers are to call to possess their vessel, their body, in sanctification and honor. 
consecrated to the Lord only for the one they are in covenant with. And so I just ask, are you guarding the sanctity of marriage in your life, in your relationship, husband and wife, and even as you may be foreseeing that for yourself, if it's the Lord's will, maybe it's not. There's certainly other ways that we can promote that sanctity of marriage. We can recognize what God's word teaches about marriage between male and female, as the scriptures teach, not as our culture would define it, not as our culture would seek to redefine it. Beyond this commandment guarding the sanctity of marriage, of course it forbids the breaking of the marriage covenant. I just want to look at the meaning of this word in the Old Testament. I want to ask you to turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Deuteronomy 22. You shall not commit adultery is the statement of the law. That Hebrew word that appears 31 times, it means very strictly in one sense to have sexual intercourse with another than a spouse as a married or betrothed person. As Moses gives what I would say an exposition of the law, we find the application of the law to certain circumstances. In verse 13 of Deuteronomy 22, he's giving laws regarding defaming a virgin, someone who had been sexually pure, and if someone who married a woman charged against her that she was not pure, then there was provisions to maintain honor in that culture. The provision involved judges and evidence. And if that charge was shown to be false, look at verse 18. So the elders of that city shall take the man, that is the man who made this false charge, and chastise him. They shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give it to the girl's father because he publicly defamed a virgin of Israel. And she shall remain his wife. He cannot divorce her all his days. Okay, that's a charge that's not true, a charge of unfaithfulness, or she lived in her father's house as a harlot, as we see in the next commandment. Look at verse 20. But if this charge is true, that the girl was not found a virgin, then they shall bring out the girl to the doorway of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death because she's committed an act of folly in Israel by playing the harlot in her father's house. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. Okay, a sin worthy of death. Verse 23, excuse me, verse 22. If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. Thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. Verse 23, if there's a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city and you shall stone them to death, the girl because she did not cry out in the city, and the man because he has violated his neighbor's wife. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. Verse 25, but if in the field 
the man finds the girl who is engaged. The idea is there's nobody around. And the man forces her and lies with her. Then only the man who lies with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the girl. There is no sin in the girl worthy of death. For just as a man rises against his neighbor and murders him, so is this the case. When he found her in the field, the engaged girl cried out, but there was no one to save her. But, verse 28, if a man finds a girl who is a virgin, who is not engaged, and seizes her, and I want to be careful here, I do think that word could be translated in different ways, the word seizes. The idea here is it could be consensual, it may not be consensual. There's different ideas about that. Obviously, God does not approve of non-consensual sex, but look at what it says. Verse 28, if a man finds a girl who is a virgin, who is not engaged, and seizes her and lies with her, and they are discovered, then the man who lay with her shall give to the girl's father 50 shekels of silver, and she shall become his wife because he has violated her. He cannot divorce her all his days. So, in the application of the law, we find adultery referenced, but we also find other sins that are related. And the context of certain sins are drawn out so that Israel's judges would have wisdom to know how to judge in certain cases. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, Matthew chapter 1, we have a reference, remember, to Joseph learning that Mary is expecting. They were in the betrothal period. They had not come together, but they were formally pledged to be married. And what was Joseph disposed to do? And the scripture says because he was a righteous man, he was disposed to put her away privately. He was going to divorce her because he thought he had found some indecency in her, that she had not been a virgin. That was obviously based on the commandments here. That would have been a problem. And rather than having her put to death, the idea was to put her away privately But the scripture says that he was a just and a righteous man. That was his thinking. Okay, even during the betrothal period. So when you find this verb, the word that means to commit adultery, and sometimes you don't find the verb, but you have the concept, uh, there's obviously reference to the sinfulness of it, and the seriousness of it is based upon the description of the act and the punishment. You can see in the punishments in this chapter, Deuteronomy 22, that there's a permanence of marriage, but there's also a purging of evil out of Israel by actually capital punishment. This is how serious the Lord takes this sin. You can look at the Proverbs and other portions of Scripture that speak of someone whose life became characterized by this sin, and they're either called an adulterer or there's a feminine form, an adulteress. In certain contexts, it seems to denote a character, not just a one-time act, but a character and a way of life. So the proverb says, this is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done no wrong. Job 24, verse 15, the eye of the adulterer waits for the twilight, saying, no eye will see me, and he disguises his face. Proverbs 6.32, the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He, would, he who would destroy himself does it. And so 
the word is used, the concept is used. And perhaps the most familiar instance in Scripture of this sin is King David when he sinned with Bathsheba. Scripture never actually calls David an adulterer, although certainly he was. But instead, it draws attention to the fact that David not only sinned with Bathsheba, but he took her as his wife. When Nathan confronted her, excuse me, when Nathan confronted David after his sin with her, he says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with a sword of the sons of Ammon. Why was David's sin so great? Because, of course, he despised God's word. And yes, it was, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Beyond that, he had taken a man's life. He used the sons of Ammon to kill Uriah. And then, after committing adultery, killing Uriah, he then takes Bathsheba into his own household. And this was, indeed, his neighbor. And David had many wives. Thomas Watson said of this kind of an act, it's like a rich thief that steals when he has no need. It was a flagrant, wicked sin. And so, as you study the scriptures, you see sometimes where the word is used, sometimes where the concept is used, and the seriousness of it is certainly referenced there in Deuteronomy. The absolute prohibition from the mouth of God in thunder, lightning, Smoke coming from the top of the mountain, that loud voice, the sound of the trumpet, God says you shall not commit adultery. The absolute prohibition of it. Turn over, if you would, to Mark chapter 7. The New Testament uses a couple of words, one of which could technically be called adultery. The concept is adultery. But there's a broader term as well. Mark chapter 7, Jesus describing the sinfulness of the human heart. Verse 20, he was saying, That which proceeds out of the man, this is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, You may have in the margin there acts of sexual immorality. So the word here is not adultery, but it refers to sexual sin. Then you go on, it says thefts, murders, adulteries. Verse 22, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from within and defile the man. So those two different words, fornications, broader term, adultery, more specific term, which one does God forbid? Both. Which one does the command specifically address? It addresses adultery, but it implies the others as well, as you can see from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is explaining the different kinds of sins that fall into this category. The word that's used there is porneia, describing sexual immorality. Jesus, in Matthew 5, verse 32, says, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife 
except for the reason of unchastity, that's the word porneia, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Turn over, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 1. It is actually reported, Paul says, that there is immorality among you. And immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Okay, the point is not so much that relationship, although it's a sinful, adulterous relationship. He uses the words immorality of such a kind. There are lots of kinds. Adultery is a kind of sexual immorality. So is fornication, homosexuality, prostitution, bigamy or polygamy, the having of two or more wives, incest, pedophilia, bestiality. We could look at the law and see prohibitions of these. God condemning these. And so the words that are used in the scripture that describe this kind of sin are more than just this term in Exodus 20. And if you just kept yourself to that term, just adultery, you realize that in scripture, adultery can be used for spiritual unfaithfulness. It can refer to idolatry that is a breaking of covenant with God and pursuing other gods. That's how it's used in the sense of the Old Testament. But look, if, if you would as well, to Matthew chapter 5. Turn to Matthew 5. Look at verse 27. We came here to look at Jesus' teaching on the sixth word, the Decalogue, starting in verse 21. But in verse 27, the seventh word, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so there is such a thing as heart adultery. Invited by a sight, a look, not just a glance, but as David did with Bathsheba, a gaze. And as he gazed upon someone who was not his wife, he then acted on his lust and took her. So when God says, you shall not commit adultery, it actually deals with the issue in marriage, but it goes beyond that to deal with other sexual sins and other acts of unfaithfulness. And it goes right to, as Jesus does here in the Sermon on the Mount, it goes right to the heart. Right to the heart. Because adultery takes place in the heart before it takes place in the life.
So then the question we have to ask is, what's going on in our hearts? What's going on in your heart? How serious is this? Well, the actual act of adultery would, would have more consequences than just the sin in the heart. Sin in the heart would make a person worthy of death in the eyes of God, but just the sin outwardly, the actual act of sin, you saw in the law, the sin against a spouse, serious enough, Jesus said it was cause for divorce. Job calls adultery shameful, destructive, worthy of judgment. He describes that possibility in Job 31. He says if he were to do that, that would be a heinous crime. Moreover, it would be an iniquity punishable by judges, for it would be a fire that consumes to Abaddon and would uproot all my increase. Jeremiah calls it folly, and he also says that God is witness to it. Why does the eye of the adulterer wait for the twilight? Why does he wait until it's dark? Why does he try to keep his act secret? Because he doesn't want anyone to know. Because there's a guilty heart there that pursues that sin but doesn't want others to see. But God calling down judgment upon Israel and then the upshot of that The upshot was, after judgment came, the people, having seen and looked back on the judgment, would say these words. Jeremiah says, because of them, these these sinful leaders, a curse will be used by all the exiles from Judah who are in Babylon, saying, may the Lord make you like Zedekiah and like Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire because they've acted foolishly in Israel and have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives, and have spoken words in my name falsely, which I did not command them. That curse was going to be used. They acted foolishly. And then it says, And I am he, capital H, who knows, and am a witness. I am he who knows and am a witness. There's no one who can just cover themselves with a twilight or hide themselves in anonymity in another place. God sees, and God knows, and it doesn't matter if no one knows but God. If it was disclosed in Israel, yes, it would have been a capital crime. Because it wasn't disclosed or wasn't found out doesn't make it any less worthy of judgment, and again, God is the one who judges this sin. It doesn't matter if human judges, like in this country, have no regard for a statute on the books that reflects the character or commands of God. In other words, if those fornication adultery laws aren't enforced here, that doesn't mean they're not going to be enforced in life and eternity. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. The marriage bed is to be undefiled. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Even if no human being judges, God will judge. And unrepented of, the sin of adultery carries an eternal penalty. I haven't read Galatians 5 in this context, but 
Paul writes, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, that's the word porneia, that broad umbrella term that covers adultery and all other sorts of sexual sins. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, unrepented of, adultery in the heart, adultery in the life, makes one worthy not only of death, but in eternity in hell. There are also consequences in life. Turn over, if you would, to Proverbs chapter 6. Beyond the eternal consequences, prior to that, Solomon outlines in Proverbs 5 to 7, wisdom for all men, young men. He's referenced adultery in chapter 5. Chapter 6, he says in verse 20, My son, observe the commandment of your father. Do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is a light. Is light. And reproofs for discipline are the way of life, to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. What would be the consequence of pursuing that relationship? What does he say? Look at verse 26. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread. There will be consequences economically. And an adulteress hunts for the precious life relationally. The danger that a person is in is described in verse 27. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? It's like playing with fire, bringing it close to yourself. Do you think you're not going to be burned? No. You will be. Verse 29 says, So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Again, you can escape the eyes of men. You'll never escape the eyes of God. And then he compares adultery with thievery. Verse 30, men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he's hungry. That's understandable. It's not right, but it's understandable. But when he's found, he must repay sevenfold. There will still be consequences for the thief He must give all the substance of his house, so there's more to pay if he gets caught. Verse 32, the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. This is self-destructive. This is not just eternally destructive. This is destructive to a life. It brings destruction. It brings disgrace. Verse 33, wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. And then aside from those things, there's also the jealousy of the one whose marriage you violated. 
Verse 34, for jealousy enrages a man, and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be satisfied, though you give many gifts. You can't pay enough money to satisfy that jealousy. You've not taken something that he can replace. You've taken something from his very flesh. You've invaded and violated that one flesh relationship. Now, you could just look at the life of David and see how things unfolded in his life following his act of adultery and murder. Certainly, you could see it in the lives of people in this world if their stories were told. And I don't know about you, but considering this subject, just kind of whenever you consider any of the commandments and it deals with sin and it goes even to the very heart, there's just a weight that the law brings. And rightfully so. This is sin in the eyes of God. It's the reason that we are condemned. The reason that we need forgiveness. And this is not the unforgivable sin. There is forgiveness for the one who repents and turns, for the man or the woman who sees themselves and sees the act of folly they've committed and wants to turn from that way. Will there be consequences? Yes, there'll be consequences, but there's also forgiveness. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel 12. If you think about David's confrontation because he would not admit, would not come clean, God sent him a prophet to rebuke him. Verse 9, Nathan says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you've despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion." And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. And you'd have to just stop and think about it. I mean, if David committed adultery and he's king, doesn't he have a certain measure of control over the kingdom? Can't he kind of determine what is happening in the justice system? And we know he tried to hide it. The problem was that there's a king above that king and the king above that king is in charge and in control and when you sin against that king, you're not in charge of justice. God brings about the justice and he can bring justice in ways that even a king can feel the repercussions and David did. But before he ever felt the consequences of his sin, he felt that word of God as it was applied to his heart And notice David in verse 13, what did he say? Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And that's confession. I, taking responsibility, have sinned. I have transgressed against. And notice David doesn't mention Uriah Bathsheba. Ultimately, the command is Godward. Yes, he'd sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, he'd sinned against Uriah. Yes, he'd sinned against their family. 
But he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And the beauty is, the very next sentence says, And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also, or also has, taken away your sin. And just that would have been enough. For David, with his spiritual sensibilities, to know that that sin was not reckoned to him, that it was, and what did he say in Psalm 32? Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. It wasn't reckoned to his account. The Lord has taken away your sin. That would have been enough. But God went even further. For a man who had coveted, stolen, committed adultery, and killed, as the chief officer of his kingdom, God said, you shall not die. David was, had committed a sin worthy of execution. God was merciful to take away his sins. He was more merciful that David didn't lose his life. Though David saw through the eyes of faith the Messiah, he did not know all that would take place. But now we know that the reason that Jesus died upon the cross and shed his blood was to cover such horrendous sin. And by his grace and by his blood... He covers ours too. If we come and ask for that forgiveness, there is power in the blood of Christ to cleanse your sin. Whether it's a sin of the heart or a sin of the life, God cleanses. He atones for. He has atoned for. Praise the Lord for the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb of God. Praise the Lord for the cross of Jesus Christ. He gave himself so that by the shedding of his blood, we could be forgiven. Paul said, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. That's what you used to be. You may have lived your life in that. A life of fornication, a life of idolatry, a life of adultery, a life of homosexuality, a life of thieving, a life of being a covetous person, which is idolatry itself. And Paul says, such were some of you, but now you're washed. Now you're sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. In other words, when God forgives, when someone comes to him by faith, puts their trust in Jesus Christ at the time of salvation, God cleanses their life. He, he justifies them. Someone has said it, it's just as if I'd never sinned. He declares them innocent of all charges, and righteous as Christ was righteous. What a mercy of God. What a grace of God. That he would take a sinner worthy of death, cleanse their sins, wash them clean, sanctify them, justify them. And obviously as you live your life and even as a Christian, you live in this world. And isn't this world just 
constantly calling for a different way of thinking. In other words, the things that we read this morning from the Word of God, they're so foreign to the reasoning of the world. Adultery is, is just not as much of a problem as the Bible makes it out to be, people would say. I, I looked at one uh, poll from Pew Research, and it was categorizing what people think about adultery. And in America, at least, in a technical definition, there's still a high level of sensibility compared to the European nations. 87% of people think that adultery is wrong. But as you look at the European nations, France was notable. 47% of people think that a, an affair or that immorality in that way, adultery, is wrong. The world is just pushing in that direction. That's why those laws aren't enforced anymore. And so the scriptures give us a different picture, and when we realize the picture of what scripture gives is sexual faithfulness to one person in a covenant relationship, or what's the other option? Singleness. Faithfulness to God in singleness. Those are the options. But God does give forgiveness for those who sin. And the pressure of the world is not an excuse for us. It's reason to guard your heart. It's reason to remind yourself of your vows. It's reason to pursue one flesh relationship with your spouse. And I just leave you with Proverbs 4, if you turn over there. I'm going to consider some other things related to this commandment next week. But Proverbs chapter 4. Same context of teaching a young man the way of wisdom. Verse 20. My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ears to my saying, ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart. For they are life to those who find them and health to all their body. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. It's out of the heart that a decision in thought is made to sin. It's in the heart that that thought turning into a habit of thinking, a way of thinking, can turn into actions. And those actions can sin against a holy God. And so are you guarding your heart? Are you guarding your eyes? Are you guarding your communication with others? Are you being careful about what you read? What is being promoted to you as a philosophy and way of life? And I think the number one influence towards adultery beyond the human heart is the internet. And are you guarding your eyes when it comes to your use of the internet? What was David's problem? Well, he had a number of problems, but one of the things that he didn't do was turn away his eyes.
the glance became a gaze. And that gaze, as he continued, he started to form thoughts in his heart as to how he could satisfy his own lust. And the result was, because he had the power to do it, he sinned against God. So guard your heart. Guard your heart. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that you're a God who does forgive sin. We thank you that you're a God who has given us graciously the gift of marriage. That we can, by our lives, if we're married, give a picture of you to the world. Thank you that that's not limited to just those who are married, those who are single certainly as well can show Christ to the world. But in a unique way, in that covenant relationship, we can give a picture. Father, we pray that whatever it is you are dealing with in our heart today, whatever you've convicted us of as far as sin, whatever you've reminded us of as far as our duty, our obligation. Lord, help us to put that on, not thinking that we're going to earn righteousness, but that we will do what is pleasing in your sight. So give us grace, Lord, today to repent. Give us grace, Lord, to see these truths as you see them. Help us not to be conformed to the mold of the world. But help us to submit ourselves to the very words of God. And we ask for your help for those who may be struggling to turn because of the ensnarement of evil in their hearts, Lord, would you give them grace even today to just collapse and submit themselves to you and turn from that sin. And if they need help, Lord, help them to get the help they need. Because you do give grace and you can overcome. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did live this life sinlessly and that you died on the cross to pay for the debt of our sins. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.